Good morning, Seabreeze. It's good to see everyone today. As Elliot said, we are concluding our series out of the book of Philippians called Peace Under Pressure, How to Experience God's Peace in the Middle of the, the Pressure of Life. As we get started this morning, I want to ask you to take out uh, this message uh, insert and go to the back of it. You'll see these two scales on the back, and I just want to ask you to kind of evaluate yourself at this point. This is just for you. Your homework will not be turned in. This is for your own purpose. But first of all, on a scale of, um, of 0 to 10, how would you rate the amount of pressure in your life right now? With zero being absolutely no pressure, you just kind of floated in here this morning, there's just no pressure on your life, and 10 being you're, you're at the breaking point. The, the pressure on your life right now is just, is just overwhelming. So how would you rate yourself on the pressure scale right now? Just put a little check next to, um, to where, you, where you feel like you're at on the pressure scale. Now, on the peace scale, where, where would you uh, put your, your internal peace on the, the scale of zero to 10 with zero being absolutely no peace? I mean, you're having a hard time sleeping at night, you're just in continual turmoil, and 10 being complete peace. Now, for most people, these two scales are linked, and the driver is the pressure scale. That's what tends to, to drive the peace scale. When the pressure goes up, the peace goes down, by, and vice versa. When the pressure drops, then the peace tends to go up. But God offers a peace, we've been talking about, that operates independent of whatever the pressures of life are right now for you. And that's because God's peace severs the link, the natural link that occurs between these two scales. And this means that over time, your peace can actually climb as your pressure scale bounces up and down. It can, the peace can just keep climbing over time. Listen to what Paul says about his experience with God's peace in Philippians 4, verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, when Paul says here, he's the author of this letter to the church in Philippi, and when Paul says he knows what it is to be in need, he's not talking about being in need in America. He's talking about being in need in this culture, in prison particularly, 2,000 years ago. And his needs didn't just threaten his job and therefore his house and maybe his retirement account. His needs threatened his very life. The way that the Romans had set up much of their prison system is they, they didn't provide the food. People had to bring food to the prisoners. And if you didn't have friends and family close by to bring you food, a lot of times you'd die in prison. And there were many times where Paul just, he didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. He didn't know where the next five or ten meals were going to come from. So his need was, was something that, that actually threatened his life. And it, he says, I, I've learned the secret of being content across, across the wide spectrum of pressure. I mean, he, he had been at the bottom of the pressure scale. He says, I've, I've been well-fed and living in plenty. In other words, I'm eating well now, and I know where, where my meals are coming in the future. I've got plenty. And he'd been at the top of the pressure scale, hungry and in want, having nothing to eat and seeing no meals on the horizon. I, I've, I've experienced the range here. And contentment is a, is a 10 on the peace scale. He says, I know the secret of being content in any and every situation. The, these two scales are, are not connected for me anymore. I know how to experience a 10 on the P scale, no matter what's happening on the pressure scale. The definition of contentment is this, to be free of external circumstances. 
to be free of external circumstances. That, that's what it means to be content. It doesn't mean to finally have enough to be content because if you've reached some goal, then you'll discover you're not content with that one. It, it's to be free of external circumstances. So what is the secret that Paul's talking about? How do you cut the link between external pressure and internal peace? Well, first, you have to think very differently, and we looked at this last week. On a, on a daily, actually throughout the day, you, you've got to think very differently than we tend to normally think if you're going to experience peace independent of pressure. And then secret number two that Paul's talking about this week is you have to expect very differently. You have to look into the future and expect some things very differently than normal. And that's what we're going to look at this week. We, we all look to the immediate future, not so much with curiosity about what might happen, but more with a, a clear set of ideas about what we think is supposed to happen. And the word for that is expectation. Now, we may be curious about the distant future, but not this afternoon. We, we have a plan for this afternoon. And if what we have planned and therefore now expect doesn't happen, our peace is in peril. Our, our peace will plummet when our expectations are not met. Now, expectations are not wrong. It's normal to have expectations. We've been given the kind of hearts that plan and look to the future, and so it's natural for us to have expectations. But expectations are appropriate whenever you're in charge of something. For example, if you're the boss on the job, you have the right to expect certain things out of those who are under your authority, who you have responsibility over. It's appropriate and right and good for you to have expectations of those employees. If you're a parent, it's okay to have the expectation, say, for example, that your child will do the chores that the family you know, has set out for that child. That, that, that's fine. That's an appropriate expectation. But there are limits to every authority except for God. Every other authority, th there are limits. There's, there's jurisdictional limits to every authority. On the job, it's appropriate to expect things out of the employees, but once they leave the job, eh, your expectations have no right. And there's even some areas on the job where you have no right to expect certain things out of your employees. There's a limit to your authority. Same thing is true with a parent authority. There's limits to that. The problem that occurs with us when it comes to expectations is whenever we form expectations about our future, about our life, that are beyond the borders of what we're actually in charge of, what we actually have been given responsibility for, and that's where we get into trouble. Whenever we try to boss around the people in our life or the situations in our life that we don't have authority over, that we're not in charge of. The same thing happens in our life that would happen if you show up to work on Monday and try to boss people around who you have no responsibility over. And chaos would, uh, would, would take place. And that's what happens in our life when we, we elevate ourselves above things that we're really not in charge of and we begin to form expectations based on our self-promotion. Paul makes two statements in this final few paragraphs, a couple paragraphs in Philippians chapter 4, that describe what it is that God will do for us. And these two statements are the limits of what we can expect. And if we stay within these borders, we will be at peace, no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets. But if we elevate ourselves beyond God and what, what he said we can expect, and we begin to expect more than these two, there will be absolutely no peace. So we're going to look at these two statements and therefore the two expectations that we really can have, the borders of them, so that we can know where it is that we can find peace. 
Number one, expectation number one is I can expect God to have a plan. I can expect God to have a plan that involves my life. Here's the statement, Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, when you hear that statement, it sounds kind of like a motivational thing that you would, you would memorize and you would repeat over and over again just to kind of pump yourself up before you face any challenge. I can do everything. I can do everything. And you kind of forget the last part of that verse. I can do everything. I can do everything. Well, this is not just some motivational speech to repeat. It, this phrase contains the answer to why you and I are in whatever situation we're in right now. Just like it contained the answer for the situation that Paul found himself in 2,000 years ago. I mean, why are things so good for you right now? Or why are things so bad for you right now? Are you just going through a patch of good luck? Or are you going through a patch of bad luck? Not according to Scripture, you're not. Every situation that we find ourselves in is the result of three actions. Number one, what we do. Number two, what other people do to us. And number three, what God does. Those, those three can triangulate the why as to what's happening in any situation. It's because, first of all, what you've done. Paul says, I can do everything. What he's saying is, you know, we've got tremendous freedom. We, we can walk out uh, after this meeting. We can walk out of this door, and, and there's, there's lots of different things we can do. We can drive this way. We can drive that way. We can go north. We can go south. We can make all kinds of decisions of what we're going to do with our time this afternoon. We, we, we have freedom, tremendous amount of freedom. And so we are in our current situation in part because of what we have done with that freedom. The choices that we've made in the past and even up to this morning, both good and bad, are a major part of why we are in the situation we're in right now. We have chosen our way with our freedom to this situation that we're in, good and bad. But that's not the only factor behind our current situation. Others also have freedom. We're not the only ones that can do everything. Everyone else in this room can do everything. They can walk out of the front door, and they can do whatever they want to do. And so others have used their freedom, some of them to do tremendous good to us, some of them to do tremendous harm to us. They've used their freedom to damage us. But what we have done and what other people have done is not the whole story of what's going on in our current situation right now. What Paul goes on to say is everything, I can do everything through him. Everything goes through him. My freedom, your freedom, everyone's freedom goes through him. He filters it all. God filters it all. Nothing gets through. Nobody has the kind of freedom that's independent of God's plan, what he's doing. It's impossible for us to figure out how these go together. But Scripture is very clear that they do. And we just have to rest in the fact that it's beyond our capacity to fully understand how these two go together. God filters everything. So we're not in this current situation just because of what we've done and just because of what they've done, but also because of what God is doing. And God's plan is the overlay on our current situation. And his plan often has a delay factor to it, which makes it difficult for us to recognize it and in some cases believe that he actually has a plan. Because at many times it looks like God's not involved at all. What we're experiencing is just God's well-known delay factor. 
For example, maybe you've been doing the wrong thing for years, and you've begun to feel like, you know, I can get away with this. There's been no consequences. Maybe God doesn't really care about this. Maybe it really isn't wrong, or maybe there really isn't even a God. Maybe he's really not involved because you've been getting away with it for years. But you see, God's just been delaying, and now this month, he decided, okay, the consequences were going to come crashing down. But you didn't think he had a plan before. You didn't think it involved you, but he did. There was just a delay. Or maybe you've been doing the right thing for years. And you've begun to wonder, too, well, how, how come things aren't working out better for me? I, mean, I, th- I, thought this, I thought the deal was I would start doing better, and God would then start bringing better results. But things have actually gotten maybe worse. So again, you've been doing the right thing, but you've been having the same questions that someone's been doing the wrong thing. Has been having. Is God really involved, or is he there? And you're really wondering, and turns out what God's really been doing is he's been working on developing your humility and your faith, which he says is, is worth gold. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the treasure of life. Not that you had a great day, but that your faith deepened. So maybe he, you know, we don't know for sure, but it could be that he's working on that. Now, we don't know the details of God's plan. All we know is that there is one. And we can be content in that plan. Now, God has a purpose behind how many things in life? Everything. I can do everything through him. Everything goes through him. Now, not only is God superintending the details of my life, he is present with me to give me strength in the middle of whatever I'm facing. So God is not just enacting a plan at a distance and then kind of folding his arms and watching us struggle. Oh, no, he, he's involved. He's close by giving us strength to endure through whatever pressure we're facing right now. And we need that strength from God because God's plans are, tend to be long-term plans. They, they, they tend to involve decades and sometimes even centuries to really begin to unfold. And so there's many days and months and even years where we, we just have to endure. And we, don't, we only have limited strength. We, we really need God's help through the Holy Spirit on the inside to give us the strength to just keep moving forward and doing the right thing. And he's there to help us do that. And one of the big parts of God's plan is to change us. And sadly, we change very slowly. We're pretty stubborn when it comes to change. And so we just have to be patient. If we run from the pressure that God has us in right now, that he's designed to change us in some ways, it's just going to take longer for him to change us. God isn't going to say, oh, okay, they're running from pressure. Then, okay, never mind. I won't try to change him anymore. Oh, no. Now you have the great pursuer of heaven on your tail, and he will not let up. God will cycle the same issue back around that he's been trying to teach you in this year. Maybe a different job, a different set of faces, a different name, but the same themes will come back again. He will track you down and put you in the same bit of pressure designed to change you. So our job is to figure out what we need to start doing and what we need to maybe stop doing. Because the longer it takes for us to learn what God wants us to learn in this moment, the longer the situation is going to drag on or the more times it's going to keep, we're going to keep finding ourselves back at the same place in this cycle of our life. But once we have, as best we can, figured out today what what we need to do and what we need to stop doing, that's what we're responsible for. Once we've done that, then we can trust that in his time, God will lift the pressure. So it is to our advantage to be content in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in because God has a plan. 
It may be very confusing. It may appear that we don't see a plan, but he has a plan. And to be discontent is to break through the limits of God's plan and force my plan on God. Basically say, God, whatever your plan is, it stinks. Now we're doing my plan. And you elevate yourself above God, and that's always trouble. And so that brings us to what we cannot expect in this area. We can't expect God to have a plan. I cannot expect God's plan to be my plan. And this is where we get in all kinds of trouble. We, we just assume that our plan is the best plan. And so clearly, it should be what God is doing. And it often never is. So to do so, to, to elevate ourselves above God and expect God to sign off on our plan and actually advance our plan is to elevate ourselves above God. Recently, we made some changes to our cell phone plan, and um, they messed it up, and, and so it took, I think, two, maybe three calls to kind of get things back where they should be or get the changes in effect. And so every customer service agent that I spoke to said this. They started out as soon as I would describe what the problem was. They would say, I am I am so sorry. That must be so frustrating for you to have this happen. And then I would talk to someone else, and they'd start out by saying, oh, I'm so sorry. That must be so frustrating for you to have this happen. And it suddenly dawned on me about the third time. was like, they're reading from a script. They're, they, this is, apparently, I'm not the only one with cell phone expectations and therefore frustrations. So th this, this is what they've been trained to do, and the script is just, I'm so sorry, that must be frustrating for you too, and then fill in the blank. You know, whatever the customer's calling about, you just fill in the blank. Now, I was trying to stay calm, but after hearing, that must be frustrating to you for the third time, I was starting to get pretty frustrated. <laughs> like, I don't know that you are sorry, and I don't know that you really do care, because I have a problem, and I expect that problem to be fixed. So clearly... I don't have the power to rule over cell phone technology. I've not been given that ability. That is not in my authority realm. But that doesn't change the fact that I feel very strongly about the outcome I expect from my cell phone. All right? Why? Because I'm the customer. I mean, I'm paying for it to work. And the customer is what? Always right. Now, if you've worked in customer service, you know that is not true. But... That's what we're all trained as customers. Hey, I'm the customer, and I may not be in charge of a lot, but right now, wherever you're talking from and whatever country, I'm in charge of you because I'm the customer. See, we live in a, a consumer-based economy. So what happens to us is we really tend to approach God the same way we do with customer service. That's really the way we tend to approach God. We, we, we believe that he is, he is in customer service. And so we approach him with our complaints and our demands. I mean, he is the one in charge, right? I mean, not of us, but of our experience. And so who else do you call and who else do you complain to? But, but we are not the customer, and God is not our customer service agent in life. In fact, the truth is so far from that. The truth is, the greatest promotion and privilege we will ever get in our brief life is to actually serve God in doing the work that he wants us to do. That, that's the biggest promotion we'll ever get. That's the biggest privilege we'll ever get. Whatever else we accomplish in life and whatever else we do in life is, is really not going to matter 
that much. I mean, it, it has value, and, and there's, there's a reason for it, and it's good. But compared to getting to serve God and what he's doing in the place that he's put us, well, that's, that's the greatest privilege of all. It turns out we are in service, not in management. That, that's who we really are. And we keep thinking that we're in management when it comes to life. But, but no, God says you're actually in service. You're not in management. Now, you can agree with this idea in your mind. You can say, yes, that's true. I, I am a servant, and God is the manager. But it's not until something that you really, really wanted to work out a certain way doesn't work out that way that you and I discover how scary this fact really, really is. You see, if we are in service, then who's going to meet our needs? Who's going to meet our needs if we're in service? That, that's a big question. And that brings us to expectation number two. Expectation number two is this. I can expect God to meet all my needs. I can expect him to meet all of my needs. This is what Paul says, Philippians 4.19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Every need that we have will be met for us in Christ Jesus. Now, in January, most of you are aware of this, three winning tickets were sold for the largest jackpot in lottery history. Remember how much it was? $1.6 billion split three ways. Well, four ways once the government got their cut. Whenever a big jackpot occurs, reporters fan out to interview people standing in line to buy the ticket. We've seen this over and over again. And you know what the question is. It's always the same question, right? They find someone, and the question is what? What, do you, what would you do if you won the lottery? What would you do with all the money? And the answers are always the same, right? Well, I'd, I'd pay off my house, maybe pay off some other debt, or I'd buy a house. I'd buy the, the car I've always wanted to have. I'd, you know, my wife and I or friends, we, we'd go on a vacation. We'd do some travel. Uh, I'd quit my job, some say. Some decide to keep working where they're working. But it, it's always the same thing. Now, what, what if you, in that same line as a reporter, instead of asking them, what, what would you do if you won the lottery? What if you said to them, and you told them, you know, that God actually has given to you his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what are you going to do with that great gift? You can just imagine how awkward that would get, right? There would be a lot of blank stares like, what do you mean? What, what would I, I mean, what, what would you do with that great gift? Well, I mean, what can you do with Jesus? I know what to do with money. Well, what, what can I do with Jesus? I mean, would he, I guess, maybe help me be a better person? Is that the right answer? Or, or feel better about myself? Is that the right answer? I mean, I say this because let's just be honest for a moment. When it comes to needs, the real needs that we have, dollars seem to do a whole lot of a better job than Jesus, right? But it turns out that we have needs that money can't seem to touch. We all know, we all know the saying, money can't buy you love. Very few of us are wealthy enough to have experienced that, but we, we hear from people that have a lot of resources that one of the hardest things for them is to, to know whether anyone around them really cares about them or they're just there because of the money. Money actually gets in the way of love, apparently. So money can't buy you love. It also turns out money doesn't have the power to change you. Studies done on lottery winners seem to indicate that most of them have a brief period of change after they win, at the beginning, but then they pretty much turn to the way they were before they won. 
If they were depressed before the winning, they're happy for a year or so, and then they're depressed again. If their marriage was in trouble before, the money just breaks it up. If they were bad with money before, they're bad with money after. I mean, whatever it is, it just doesn't, millions of dollars, it doesn't seem to change people that much. So the point of this verse isn't, you have a mortgage, Jesus will pay it for you. That's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is, in Christ, God has given us what we actually need the most. He took on a body and paid the debt of our sin by giving up his perfect life in exchange for our imperfect lives. And if we accept that most amazing of all gifts, it answers once and for all the big questions that we have inside that reflect our deepest needs. And so questions like, will I have enough money to put my kids through school or pay the rent or the mortgage or retire on, those are no longer the big questions. The big questions are these, am I loved? Am I okay? Do I have value? These are the big questions. And we wake up every day with these questions deep in our souls. And they drive us through our lives. And in Christ, these questions have been forever answered with a giant yes. So if out of his glorious riches, God met our deepest needs, the idea is that we can trust him with the small stuff. We can trust him with the rent and the mortgage and the food and the shelter. We can trust him with the small stuff. The problem is that we can't see God's love and grace like we can money. I mean, I can log onto my bank account this afternoon and, and check the balance in my checking account. But there is no web portal or app where I can log on to God's love and see, well, you know, I, I, I kind of struggled last week. Has, has his love been diminished? Because it feels like it should be because I, I, I struggled last week. Well, we know the answer is no, his love didn't diminish, but, but we can't see it. We can't verify it. And so we tend to look for answers to these three big questions from the next best thing to God that we can find, and that is other people, because we can see other people. And so we walk out into our world each day asking the same three questions of people. Now, we don't say these questions. We don't walk up and say, am I loved? Am I okay? Do I have value? But we walk up, and suddenly, in other ways, these are the questions behind every other conversation and every other thing we do. Do, do I, am I loved today? Am I okay today? Do I have value today? Now, the truth is, what, what Paul is saying is these questions have already been answered in Christ. So what we're really, when we do this, what we're really doing is we're like lottery winners worried about paying the mortgage. It's just, we, we, we just completely misunderstand the glorious riches of God's love for us and how that has met the deepest of needs that we really have. So deep that money could never touch it, could never affect these at all. But we tend to turn to other people, and we expect them to answer these questions, and that's the thing that we cannot expect. I can't expect God to meet all my needs. I cannot expect you to meet my needs. I can't expect you to meet my needs. And this is where we get in a lot of trouble. Whenever we do that, whenever we expect someone else to answer these questions, to meet any of these needs in any form at all, we are elevating ourselves above them. We are putting ourselves in authority over them, and we are expecting something of them that we have no right to expect. Why, why do two people get married in life? 
Well, they love each other, right? Yeah, that's why two people get married. They fall in love. So then why is it that these two people argue with each other more than anyone else on planet Earth? I mean, if they love each other more than anyone else, then why is it that they argue with each other more than anyone else? I mean, that's, that's the truth, isn't it? So why? Well, it turns out there was a hidden expectation behind all of the romance. And you're probably aware of what that expectation is. Whenever two people stand up and they say I do to each other, what's going on in most of their minds is this. Here, finally, is the answer to all of the needs of my life. Look at this person. They are right now saying I do, and the way I hear that is a big, giant yes, I am loved. Yes, I am okay. Yes, I do have value. And so then they go on to their honeymoon, and they go on to life, and what happens? Well, every day in the future, they wake up and they have that question again. It turns out the big I do yes wasn't enough. You know, it's been 31 years for me. I still wake up most days, and I have that question in my heart, and I don't wake up and turn to my wife and say, do you love me today? But it turns out as I go through the day, it's one of the questions. Actually, the bigger question for me is, do I have value today? The bigger question for her is, am I loved? I mean, I have that same question, but it's a little bigger for her than for me. It's, am I valued? Am I important? Do I, do I, do I matter? And we just have those questions. And it's never enough to know that they said yes once, 31 years ago, in front of a bunch of people. Well, I want to know today. A lot has changed since then. What, what about now? Am I still okay? Am I still loved? Do I still have value? And what also happens is it turns out that you, when you got married, if you're married, you weren't the only one with these questions. They have the exact same questions. They're asking the same questions. And what tends to happen is a stalemate ensues where... We say, I, I'm not going to love you until I have confirmation that you love me. Well, I'm not going to give indication that you're okay until I have indication that I'm okay. I'm not going to tell you how much I value you until you tell me how much you value me. That, that's what an argument really is. And so we're stuck, aren't we? We both have what the other one wants, but we won't give it until the other one gives what, the, what we want. And so we're, we're stuck in this exchange. Now, it, it's fine. It's fine to want people to vote yes for you. But that's very different from needing them to. How can you tell if what you want someone to do is just a want and not a need? Well, by how you respond whenever the answer is no. If you're sad, it was just a want. If you're mad, oh, it was a need. You needed them to vote for you. So we all carry in our soul these questions about ourselves that only God can answer. God has answered all of them in Christ. But if we don't believe that God's eternal yes is enough, or we let it slip from our mind, we'll approach the people in our life from a position of need, not just want, not just desire. I need your vote. When, in fact, it would be nice to have your vote. That's fine. I'd, I'd love to have you affirm my value and remind me that I'm okay. But, you know, if you don't, I, I don't need that because that, that question has already been answered. And so 
you know, my wife gives me a look, or I give her a look, and we get mad. Why? Because I need her affirmation. But do I really? No, I don't. I'd like it, but I don't need it. You see, God said yes to me in Christ. What more can be said on the topic? Nothing can really be added to that. Now, God didn't just say yes. He did yes. I mean, his yes involved taking on a body and then dying a long and gruesome death to rescue me from my sin. How can anyone add to that yes? There's nothing more that really can be added to it. I mean, I'm, I'm walking around with a needy heart, just like you're walking around with a needy heart, that's been absolutely filled to overflowing with the love of God. And if someone else says yes to me, it's not going to add anything else to my neediness. That cup is already full. It's already flowing over. So you want to pour more on there? Sure, that'll feel good. But it's not going to add anything to the cup of my neediness. Now, if you're like me, you just forget this amazing truth. So I have to bring this to the front of my mind daily. This is why these two secrets go together, what you expect and what you think. Because what you think is often what you expect. You need to think about this. So for, I'll just give you a couple examples of things that happen regularly in my week that I have to remind myself. Every week I prepare a message that I use to you know, stand here in front of you. And on some weeks, it goes a little easier than other weeks. It's a little tougher to figure out what to say. And so it's not uncommon for me to maybe get a little fearful, a little worried uh, in a particular day or a couple days and wonder, what, what am I going to say? I don't know how this is going to you know, go. And it's helpful for me at that point when I'm maybe a little fearful, a little worried, is to realize, you know, what, what's happening here today is I'm not standing before you asking for, for your vote on me. That, that's not what's going on. I don't need you to vote yes for me and for this message today. Because in Christ, God has already voted yes to me. So what that means is you're not as scary then. Because I don't need you. I'm not saying I don't like you. And I, I, I don't want you to be helped by this. But, but I'm not coming before you on Sunday to say, could, could you laugh at me and what I say? Could you you know, stay awake? Could you nod? Could you, could you vote in such a way that there's an indication that, that I'm doing okay? That's not what this is. I'm just standing before you as best I can to take a responsibility God has given me and teach out of his word truth. And you'll do with it whatever you do with it. But, but this is not about me. In Christ, I've already received the yes vote. So your vote might feel good, but it doesn't add anything to God's yes. My job is to do my best and to love you. And so that this frees me up to enjoy this. This isn't as scary. Because I don't, I don't need that from you. Another thing that happens most weeks for me is I hear some criticism. I'm sure you do too. It's just part of doing through life. There's, there's different ideas. And so, uh, you know, someone will share with me a, a thought, and it's not always real critical, but sometimes it's, yeah, why don't we do this instead of this, or how can we do that? And my common response whenever someone's critical of me in any way is to get very defensive. Why? Well, because I need them to agree with me. But do I? Do I really? Do I need everyone's yes? No. I need God's yes. 
I need to be sure I'm on track with what he's doing. But even if I make a mistake, the world doesn't come to an end because God has already said yes about me. So you know what that does is that I don't have to be afraid of criticism because people aren't criticizing my eternal value and worth. They're not saying I'm not okay. They're not saying I have no value. They're just criticizing maybe something I'm doing. And you know what? Maybe they're right. So this frees me up where I I can actually calm down and listen. Maybe God is speaking through this person. Maybe, Maybe there's a thought that you really need to consider, that you haven't considered. I don't have to get defensive. Now, I'm not saying I do this perfectly every time, but this is what I need to do in my mind, is I don't need them to approve of me. And that just frees us up in life to get on with the business of what we actually are responsible for, to really love people and do the work that God's given us to do. So let's go back to the pressure and the peace scale. Let's put them back up on the screen here. What is it that drives the pressure up in life? Usually it's these two things. Our plans are not working out, and our needs are not being met by the people in our lives. When one or both of these occur, it drives our pressure up and our peace down. But what, what if there was a bigger and better plan in place than just ours? Then, Well, then we could be at peace, even when our plans are in shambles. And what if our deepest needs have already been met And with that comes a guarantee that all of our much smaller needs would also be met. Well, if that was true, then we could be at peace in the face of tremendous need, like Paul, sitting in prison, not knowing where the next meal would come. We could actually be in peace in a situation like that. But in order for that kind of peace to take hold, we'd have to be willing to let go of our plans in favor of God's plans. And that's where we tend not to cut the link between these two scales. We won't let go of our plans in favor of God's plan. And we'd have to be willing to accept God's yes vote as even more important than anyone else's no vote. And we also get stuck there. Our tendency is, God, we really appreciate your love, but what we really want is this person's acceptance. What we really need is this person's approval. I know the God of the universe has taken on a body and died in my place. But what I really want is this vote over here. And then there's no peace. You see, we would have to think very differently about what we can expect in life. Because what we think should happen influences how we respond to what actually does happen. And that's where we get tripped up on peace. Life keeps surprising us and disappointing us because we're, we're expecting something to happen that God says, no, nah, it's not going to happen. You can expect me to have a plan. You cannot expect my plan to be your plan. You can expect me to meet all of your needs, but you cannot expect that person to meet all of your needs or those group of people to meet all of your needs. If we expect our plans to prevail and if we expect people to meet our needs, there there will be no peace. There'll be no peace. So let me give you some next steps to consider as we wrap up today. These are on the back of your connection card, also the bottom of the listing guide on the front page. I would encourage you to memorize these two verses, Philippians 4.13 and 4.19. 13 again says, I can do everything, don't stop there, through him who gives me strength. Verse 19, and my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. These are just (laughs) 
amazing statements of truth that will, will cut the link between the pressure and the peace, and our peace can rise over time. The second thing I would encourage you to do is write down or identify and write down your top three expectations. Just take some time this week, maybe this afternoon. What, what are, the, what are the, my top three expectations in life? If you're struggling to figure out what they are, ask yourself this. What are the three things I'm most angry about right now? That'll probably be an expectation hiding behind that anger. What, what is it? What are those expectations? And then write down what you can actually expect in those three areas. Just try to figure out, is that expectation legitimate or not? According to what we've talked about this morning, what can you expect in that area? And write that down. Now, I want to close this series by asking you to stand and read the theme verse together with me. So let's go ahead and stand. This is Philippians 4, 6 through 7. We didn't go over this today, but we've gone over it several times in this series. And so I just wanted to, to end by having us read this together. And then I'll close in prayer, and then we'll move on to the next thing. So let's read this together. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. While you're standing, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are so grateful for the offer of your peace, and we are in such need of it. We don't know anything like the pressure Paul experienced, but even in the pressure we experience, there's just a lot of turmoil on the inside. And this is not the way it should be. And we need your help to cut the link between the pressure and our peace. We need to experience and know the kind of peace that you offer that will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for sacrificing yourself to address and to meet our deepest of needs. And as we move into the pressure of this week, help us remember what it is that we really can expect and what it is that we cannot expect and align our expectations with that. I pray for those that are in tremendous pressure and right now they're wondering if there is any plan. God, help them to trust you and your plan at work and give them the strength to keep enduring. We need your help and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.